Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. When I was growing up at going to church camp, uh, much like Butler Springs, I went to White Mills Christian Camp. It's very similar camps. Uh, we would always have missionary speakers uh, join us for the week. And the missionary speakers would talk about their mission. They would, uh, we would get to give our offering. You know, we always brought a couple of dollars for canteen and a couple of dollars for the, for the missionary. And um, it seems like every year uh, the missionary would also make a call to us that we would go into ministry, that we would go into some sort of work for the Lord. And there was one passage that would be used a lot of times from Isaiah chapter 6. And we've been talking about our favorite Old Testament stories, uh, some of the, our, our Old Testament stories that we've heard in Sunday school over and over again. And I think this is another one of those stories from the Old Testament, narratives from the Old Testament, history lessons from the Old Testament that gets used a lot in our Sunday school classes. And then our, I think our, some of our Sunday school classes maybe don't quite take the, the narrative far enough. And uh, here was the passage uh, I remember one missionary using, and it is such a great call of the Lord. It comes from Isaiah chapter 6. I'm just going to read the, the verse that he would use uh, for us, students, as we were listening. And it comes from chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And that's a, that's a powerful call and then the missionary would always, would always follow it up with, is God calling you? Is God sending you? You need to answer the call to go do the work of the Lord. And that's a powerful piece. But in chapter 6 of Isaiah, there is so much more than just that one verse. And I'd like to look at those verses today. There's um, 13 verses in chapter 6. I'd, li- I'd like to read all of them, and I'd like us to break down a little bit more than just this call, and maybe it's not a call so much as a commission. And we're going to see that it's not exactly the same as going on the mission field thinking you're going to save the world for Jesus. Here is how Isaiah chapter 6 begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. 
make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the tabernacle and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Boy, that last section of Isaiah 6 is, is hardly ever taught in Sunday school class. I, just as a side note, before we get into the main text of the message, we need to probably understand what's going on there. God called Isaiah to preach, but his preaching would actually make the hearts of Israel harden, not soften toward the Lord. His preaching would actually lead them to deny God, not repent, and not turn from their ways, and go toward their destruction. I'll read that passage again. It's, it's in verse 9. Go and tell them, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and their eyes closed. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their, with their hearts, and turn and be healed. There's a theme in Scripture where God, when people are are bent on destruction, he limits the evil they cause and speeds up their destruction. He speeds up uncreation. It's a theme that happens in the scripture. In the flood story of Noah, we find out after 1,500 years of people turning further and further away from the Lord, finally God's patience ends. And we see in Genesis chapter 6, that all the people's hearts and inclinations were toward evil, and God said, I've had enough, and he begins the process of decreation. He created the world good, and he put humans there that were good, and humans became corrupt, and then they were corrupting his creation, and so he sped up the corruption process and sent a worldwide flood, destroying all people except one family, be saved by grace. We, say, we find the same thing happening with Pharaoh in the Exodus story. In the Exodus story, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Yahweh, the God of my people, says, let my people go worship him. And Pharaoh begins, we, the first time when we meet Pharaoh, he's already a pretty not nice guy, but he says, I don't recognize this God. I don't know a Yahweh God. And so he's already bent to deny God and rebel against God's ways. And we find later through the plagues that God does harden Pharaoh's heart. It's already a path he had taken to deny God. And so God speeds up the destruction process, the uncreation process for Pharaoh. And he destroys him in water like he was destroying the Hebrew children in water, just like he had destroyed the world in a flood. And here we find Judah with the capital city, Jerusalem. And they had been centuries in rebellion against God. Centuries where they did not obey. Let me rephrase that. Isaiah says that they still did the sacrifices and they still brought their offerings. But because their hearts were in idol worship, And far from the Lord, God said the offerings 
and the sacrifices were detestable to him. And he began the process of their exile. Isaiah, in chapters 1 through 5, had talked about the rebellion of Israel, the rebellion of Judah, the rebellion of Jerusalem, and there was going to be this terrible destruction come upon them unless they repented. In chapter 3, he says there's this great woe coming. In chapter 5, he says it six different times. Woe is coming. Destruction is coming. A terrible army is going to invade and destroy everything. And then the destruction process begins with the death of the king. As we look at Isaiah chapter 6, and we see just a little bit beyond Verse 8, during the call, we need to take three actions that the narrative is calling us to take. First, we need to remember, then we need to recognize, and then we need to respond. Remember, recognize, and respond. The first one, we need to remember that God is bigger. God is bigger. That's what we need to remember, and somebody in this room I know needs to hear this, but let me explain. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Remember, God is bigger. Uzziah happened to be one of the good kings. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 4, it tells us Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, he wasn't a perfect king, but he was the first king since Solomon who had the expansive project of, of Judah and Israel. He expanded the lands. He uh, He made the lands more prosperous. He brought in more money. He had more military victories. Even the enemies gave him honor. Now, he wasn't perfect because there was the kings all pointed to that perfect king, that Jesus that was coming. And Uzziah maybe got proud. Uh, In fact, it tells us he really got proud and, and kind of ruined his kingdom. But as long as he focused on the Lord and doing what the Lord said, God blessed him with health and wealth and prosperity. And a lot of people in Judah were putting their faith into the political party of their day, King Uzziah, for their salvation. Because if the king is doing well, that means God's favor must be on their land. That must be, mean God's favor is on me. I think a lot of people today put their hope in a political party. And then when your political party fails, the idol you have made out of them, it also causes you to lose hope in your own heart. When the king died in Jerusalem, this was the beginning of the destruction process that Isaiah had been preaching about. And when the king died in Jerusalem, a lot of people's hope in their political king who was going to make their nation great again or who was going to make it better, it died with them. But God wants us to remember that he's bigger than any political party. God wants us to remember that when your political party looks like a dumpster fire, he is still high and exalted and on his throne. God wants us to remember that whatever has gone away, God is bigger than what was taken away from you. God wants us to remember that whatever is coming your way, God is bigger and can take care of you. God is bigger than whatever was taken away, and God is bigger than whatever is coming your way. You can completely trust him. In the year that King Uzziah died, oh no, what's going to happen? I saw the Lord 
high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God is alive even if the king is dead. God rules even when it feels like everything is falling apart. And God not only rules and is alive, but he's high and exalted. This hierarchy plays a big deal in the book of Isaiah, and you'll read about it again and again and again. There's God, and then there's everything else beneath him. But there is a hierarchy. There's God. There's spiritual beings. There's a heavenly host. There's the army of angels that he sends to do his business. There, there's the prophets that declare the word of the Lord. Everybody, there's a hierarchy here, but God rules over all of it. God even rules over political kingdoms. He's high and exalted. He's bigger than anything that can come your way. And he's seated on his throne. That throne is not just a symbol. It is the reality that God is ruler and judge over all creation. And it is a symbol that God still rules and he still judges creation. Well, how big is this God? Well, it says the hem of his robe fills the entire temple. Now, it'd be, he'd be a pretty big God if his robe filled the entire temple. Can you imagine me wearing a robe that would fill up this entire room? That'd be a pretty big robe. Can you imagine if it was just the hem of my robe that filled up this entire room? Our God is a big God, and we need to remember that when we start feeling despair and feeling like things are out of control and feeling like woe is coming and woe has come, we need to remember God is bigger. Even the hem of his robe has power. In Matthew chapter 14, it says people were brought to Jesus just so they could touch the hem of his robe and they were healed. In Mark chapter 5, it said there was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and she'd spent all of her money on doctors and medications and none of it helped. And she saw Jesus and she figured if she could just touch his robe. And while they were all crowded around Jesus, she got close enough to touch the hem of his robe and she was healed. We need to remember that God is bigger than anything that's gone away and bigger than anything coming your way. He rules all creation. But not only do we need to remember God is bigger, we need to recognize that God is holy, holy, separated. Not like anything else. There is nothing like him. Above him were two seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings that covered their faces, that you can't look directly at the holiness of God, the complete God, with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. God is holy. He's other. He's perfect, perfectly wise, perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfect in his judgments, perfect in his patience, perfect in his responses, perfect in his planning. There is nothing like God. He deserves all of our praise and glory. 
Our hearts are these idol factories that always make up things for us to spend time with and spend money on and spend our attention to. And it is the glory of God that deserves our attention and our money and our praise and our time. And Isaiah gets to see part of this glory. In Hebrew and in Greek, they didn't have uh, the term like the greatest or, or the superlatives, but if they wanted to emphasize something, they would repeat it. And God is emphasized holy, holy, holy. Three times there is nothing like the holiness of God. We need to recognize how God is holy. When people see the living God in the scripture, they have a clear response. They're distraught. They fall down like dead men. They fall on their knees in worship. If you ever hear of someone saying they came in contact with God and they met God face to face and they didn't have this type of response the scripture says, you need to question whether the reality of their story I've been in company of a preacher friend of mine, as we were in prayer, was overwhelmed with the love of God, and it forced him to the floor, weeping, and he could not get up. That's the type of terror, that's the type of response that we have when we come in contact with a holy God. We need to remember that he's big. We need to remember that he's bigger, but we need to recognize that he's holy and when we recognize that he is holy, we begin to recognize that we are not holy. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah, we have just spent, if you read Isaiah, you spend five chapters with him pointing his finger at Jerusalem saying, woe to you, you sinners. And now when he comes face to face with God, he realizes he is just like the sinners he's been preaching against. He is the same type of person that God deserves to pour out his wrath on and rightly deserves to punish. And all of a sudden, Isaiah realizes he is as big a sinner as anybody he's pointed out. This is a moment of recognition that almost destroys him. He recognizes his sin. You know, when we come face to face with Jesus Christ and the love and the glory he gives us on the cross and the power of Jesus, a true conversion of our heart to the Lord is this humble recognition that we don't deserve to be in his presence, that we are sinners. There's one preacher who says, let me, I, I actually wrote it down, so I, I, let me not misquote it. He says, in the presence of God, degrees of sin become irrelevant. It is the holiness of God which reveals to us our true condition, not comparison with others. Here, Isaiah had just spent saying, watch out, God is coming, repent. And he realizes he needs to repent. I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ today, but repentance needs to be a lifestyle of the new convert to Christ and the veteran of the faith. 
And I'll give you an example of why I feel this way. There was a, a poll done, a survey done, just this past year, 2021. It was done between 36 churches in our brotherhood across six states, 1,468 participants. Barna says if you can get 1,200 people to respond to a survey, it's a pretty good indication of what it's like nationwide. This survey done by the Christian Church Leadership, uh, the Center for Christian Church Leadership in Cincinnati, it's uh, 70% of the Christians who took this survey had been Christians for over 30 years. These are veterans of the faith. 30% of the Christians that took this had been Christians for over 50 years. Okay, so these are people who have been to Sunday school, they've been to church. The ages go from 30 to 74, with 50% of these Christians between the age of 50 and 74. Now, as I look out today in the first hour, there's a lot of Christians out here that are between the ages of 50 and 74, with some a little younger and some a little older. 40% of the Christians were between the ages of 30 and 49. This is, this is this is a little scary. 70% of those Christians said that being part of a church meant participating in programs. Here's what this means. They had been trained to show up for a program, give money so a program would be successful or the leaders of the program would be paid, and they counted their faith successful if they attended a program. 70% of veterans of the faith thought being a part of a church was participating in some program that happened in a week. When Jesus calls the people of God out and he says, my church will raise the gates of hell. He's talking about the people who trust in the blood of the lamb and give their testimony and are not afraid to die for Jesus. He's not talking about people who attend concerts. And yet 70% of our brotherhood, veterans of the faith, said that they thought being faithful to God meant attending a program. Let me read you some more startling statistics. 42% of those surveyed said they work daily to reflect Christ. That means 60% of these Christians who have been a Christian for over 30 years, 60%, don't work daily to reflect Jesus in their life. That's scary. This one I've seen in our church. 44% said that they work to forgive deep hurts from others. 55% of those surveyed did not work at forgiving others. A couple of weeks ago, I got in a conversation with a church member 
and the church member was mad at somebody else in the church. And this church member started telling me how angry he was at somebody in the church. And as he was telling me, his voice got louder and louder and louder. So loud that the funeral home director had to come out and tell us to go outside. I said, this seems like it's been going on a long time. Oh, it has. Have you ever thought about forgiving him? I will never forgive him unless he comes and apologizes. I had to call the funeral home director later that afternoon and apologize and said, I'm sorry for us being loud. I'm sorry for allowing that conversation to get out of control. And he told me, Dale, it wasn't you that I heard yelling in my funeral home. said, I'm sorry, I should not have allowed the conversation to go there. But if we have trained Christians not to forgive, but to attend programs as faithfulness, that means 60, almost 60% of us don't work on forgiveness. Doesn't Matthew chapter 6 say, if you don't forgive others, God will not forgive you. Only 26% of those surveyed said they pursued habits that model Christ. 81% said, Christ expects me to make disciples. So we're teaching that, but only 24% work to make disciples. When we read the prophets... There is a distinct indication that their prophecy is for the people that they are speaking to. Isaiah was speaking to the people of Israel, people of Judah, the people who lived in the city of Jerusalem. And he said the destruction is coming upon them because of their rebellion against God, their worship of idols, their rebellious heart, their inability to Repent. It is for sure for those people. And there is an element of the prophets that we read where it is directed at the people of their time, but it is also meant. What if the prophecy of Isaiah that says you need to repent, you need to turn to God, he is holy, is meant for us, Otherwise, there's going to be a destruction in our land and an invasion in our land and like we have never seen. And there's this theme that happens in the Scripture that says God allows evil to continue for only so long before he limits it and he begins the process of decreation. What is it, 60 million babies have been murdered in abortion over the last 40 years and we have been a part of this culture. We need to repent and recognize God is holy and we need to turn to him and turn away from our consumer Christianity attitude. We need to turn away from me first thinking and we need to start acting like Jesus and seek to forgive others so that we can be forgiven. 
We need to cry out with Isaiah before we get sent, before we say, yeah, send me. We need to say with Isaiah, woe is me. Please, God, forgive me for what I've been a part of, what I have participated in, what I have stood by and watched happen. And then the cleansing will take effect, not only on us, not only on our church, not only on our brotherhood, but across the land. And God provides the cleansing when we turn to him. For Isaiah, it was a live coal from the altar of God in the throne room of heaven, and it touched his lips, and it made him clean. Then he was able to be sent. For us, it is the altar of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice on the cross. When Jesus dies for us, he takes our sin with us. He gives us two types of healing with the with the sacrificial death and resurrection on the cross, number one, he declares us not guilty instantly. Our sins removed as far as from the east as from the west. We are made holy. Number two, he cleans us up little by little as we strive to be like him, as we get rid of the sin that so easily entangles and focus our attention, fix our eyes on Jesus, as we throw off the old man and put on the new Christ as we daily clothe ourselves with Christ, he provides this change that happens in our heart where our attitude and our actions and our words begin to reflect the status of our heart which he has formed within us. But it doesn't happen without repentance. This is why Martin Luther says repentance needs to be a daily action. Because every day we fall short of the mark But you might have noticed, things aren't great in our nation. It's gonna have to start with me saying, woe is me, and repenting. It's gonna have to start with you. It's gonna have to start with our church. And then as we turn to the Lord, turn away from ourselves and turn to Jesus, as we take up our cross daily, he'll provide healing, not only in this community, but in our nation. We could be the start of the next great awakening, but it's gonna take repentance. We need to remember that God is bigger. We need to recognize that he is holy. We need to recognize that we're not, and then we need to respond with repentance. Now, now we can respond to the commission. God commissioned Isaiah, go and tell this people it's very similar to the commission Jesus sent all of his disciples on. Go and make disciples. And notice Isaiah's commission is a call to be faithful to the task. It's not a call to be successful. Our call from Christ is the same he sent his disciples out two by two to go in all the lands and preach that the kingdom of God is near. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And he said, some cities, some towns, some communities are gonna accept you. Some homes are gonna bring you in. And when they do, you put your peace on that home. And if they reject you, you just shake the dust off and you move on. And Jesus' call to us is the same. 
Go and make disciples. And as you go, you make disciples by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. You're willing to die for Jesus. And some people are gonna accept your testimony. Some people are gonna accept the call and some people are gonna reject you. He said, don't worry about the people that reject you. Find the people of peace that will accept your call and build into them, make them disciples, and they'll go make disciples too. I think God is still searching. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Wouldn't it be awesome if our church just said, send me? And then we just remain faithful to tell what God has done for us over and over and over and over again. And if some join with us, we praise God. If some reject us and reject our testimony, we praise God. I believe persecution is coming to the United States. I believe persecution, like the rest of the world has felt, where Christians are murdered, is coming to the United States. I believe there's gonna be a day in my time where we will not be allowed to meet and gather in one location without being oppressed. And so we gotta do the little things now to prepare us for that moment. And the little things that start the revival is we repent and turn to God and then obey and respond to the commission to go and make disciples. In the Ukraine, part of the political war from Russia into the Ukraine is also theological. When the Ukraine split from Russia, they split the Russian Orthodox Church There are more Christians in the Ukraine than anywhere else in Europe. And they developed and made disciples. And they had these communities of disciples that were building into each other's faith. And so when hardship came and the war attacked, the Christians are responding. And you know what they see when their safety and security and money is taken away? They see that God is high and exalted and still on his throne. And when they see the war that comes their way and the missiles that comes their way and their homes are bombed and their universities are bombed and their hospitals are bombed, they see God is still lifted up and high on his throne. Because they, they weren't like our survey where Christians who had been Christians for over 50 years 70% of them weren't making disciples. They were more the reverse of that. If we don't change, when hardship comes our way, our faith will go away. We need to remember God is bigger. We need to recognize He is holy. We need to recognize we're not holy and respond by turning to Him for cleansing and then respond by telling others about Christ and what he does for us. And our job is to be faithful. William Carey was a missionary. It took him seven years before he had his first convert. A. Judson, seven years before his first convert. In Western Africa, when Christianity went there for the first time in years, it took 14 years before a Christian church was developed. In New Zealand, the first missionary to New Zealand, nine years before the first Christian 
made his faith known. Robert and Mary Moffat were in Botswana 10 years and they didn't have a single convert for 10 years. Their missionary board began to call them saying, you've been there 10 years, it might be time to come home. And they said, we, we really believe God is doing something. We really think God is doing something here. Can we stay a little longer? And the missionary board let them stay another year and another year and another two years went by and no convert came of their work. Someone wrote Mary from England and said, we're gonna send you a gift, what can we send you? And Mary said, would you send us a communion set? Because I just have faith God is gonna move. And God rewarded her faithfulness. The day before the communion set arrived, six Botswanan people converted to Christ. They were baptized and then they took communion. Our call is to respond and be faithful. We hope you have enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just want more information about our church, be sure to fill out a Connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining, and we will see you back here next time.